0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. So uh, some of you, a uh, good number of you may not have been here for the last two or three sessions that we've been working on uh, what we're calling the uh, logical relationships between clauses in our Bible study and So we're going to go uh, back over a couple of things. Let me have uh, Dwayne put that uh, up on the screen for us here, and I hope I can see most of this through the castle blocks and everything. Let's see if it comes. There it is. Okay. So uh, I I decided to put some of this together in a slide format so we could be a little interactive with it. Now, I did give you guys a uh, homework assignment last time. We had this text that we were looking at as an example in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. John, could you bring me my uh, Bible? I think it's on the chair to your left. And the stack of stuff there, thank you. Um, so that was the text that we were working on. And uh, we had provided last time a indented, we'll call it uh, phrase diagram, um, or a clause diagram, I should say, perhaps better. Did you catch the difference between a phrase and a clause? Did we get that last time? Do you know, Jackson? Since you're actively in English class, You've got to help us out here. A clause is a group of words with a subject and a verb, and a phrase is a group of words without a subject and a verb. So I think of a, a phrase as just a shorter group of words. A clause is a longer one. Think of independent clause, dependent clause, that sort of thing, for a longer uh, group of words. But in any case, so this is the text that we were working on. And let me see what I have as the next slide. So we did an indented diagram, which wasn't very detailed, but it was something where we uh, kind of divided it up so that we had uh, a verb and an object and sometimes a subject on each line or, or in fact, in this case, an implied subject, God resists the proud, but, and then you could kind of insert here in your mind, but God gives grace to the humble. It's the same subject as the uh, verb resists there with the verb gives. So we divided those two lines, and then we put the therefore underneath that. What are you supposed to do as a consequence? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Uh, and then we saw that he may exalt you in due time, uh, and so on. Now, we put some labels by each of those last time, and so let's uh, let's remember what those were. And I was going to say... Uh, last time that we can say that the proposition is up here in the very beginning. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then the, the things that follow that, the information that follows that or results from that comes next. I don't know if you that are online can actually see that. Maybe John can uh, swing the camera over that way instead of having it on me the whole time. But. Um, So what did we call the first line? We said that was the proposition or truth, and that was a negative-positive style of phrasing. Do you remember that negative-positive style? Uh, Negative, God resists the proud. Positive, give, but he gives grace to the humble. Often you'll see that with the word but, the adversative word there. Okay? Then you have the word therefore, which is a uh, statement that is supported by the preceding. So in other words consequently to God's the proposition that God negatively resists the proud positively gives grace to the humble what should you do about that well therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and uh if you do that the purpose of doing that is that you would uh be exalted in due time okay so your purpose in doing that is I'm humbling myself under the mighty hand of God, not only because he gives grace to the humble, but because I would appreciate being exalted in due course, not uh, being resisted by God. I don't want to be in the, in the camp of being resisted by God. Okay, now I'm going to give you a little quiz here. What was that last? Let's see if I can reach up here. What was this, what was this phrase here or clause? Casting all your care upon him. What was the relationship of that to the prior text? Somebody remember what we said last time. Each each one of these is a is a we have a a logical relationship between clauses before or after or both. Anne, do you have a thought on that? Okay, Anne is saying that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. How? By means of casting our cares upon Him. Okay, so we said this is a means clause that is how you humble yourself before God. So let me, I've often said this before, if you don't cast your cares on the Lord, what does that mean? You're in trouble. (laughs) In, In this context, it means you're proud. You're not humbling yourself, okay? So humbling yourself is an evidence of or uh, casting all your care is an evidence of being humble. Not casting your care on God, saying, I can manage this. I'll take care of this. I'll think about this. I'll be anxious about this. That is an evidence of pride, not of humility. And then we said, and so I think that's an important important principle. You want God's grace and and, uh, not his resistance. Um, And then the last one here is, uh, so we're casting all of our cares on him, and then we have the word for. What does the word for often uh, indicate? Somebody? Could be a purpose, reason, explanation. Sometimes could be a result. It's a very versatile word in English. Um, So it's uh, a ground here. Casting your care on him. And what's the ground or reason you can do that? Well, you're not just throwing your cares off into outer space and pretending they're gone. You're casting your cares to him because he cares for you, and you believe that, okay? All right, so then I gave you a homework assignment. Uh, Did anybody attempt the homework assignment? Probably had vacation Bible school and lost electricity so you couldn't see your homework paper and your dog ate the homework and all that, right? You've never used those ex- what's that? You were absent. Oh, okay. Absence. Oh, sorry, Ann. So one of our one of our folks did do her homework, but she left it at home because uh-huh. we had a any intermediate uh, week last week where we didn't do this exercise. So we're all messed up now. All right. So let's take a look. We're going to go into more detail now in this diagram. All right. And uh, so I'm going to put the same text. Okay. It's this. This is the same text that we have here but it's going to be a little smaller on the screen now. And I'm going to space it out like I like to do when I'm diagramming a text of Scripture, and you'll see why I do this uh, in a moment. So God resists the proud. I just start with that. So when you have a big project in front of you, like three verses to diagram, don't do it all at once. Do it little by little, okay, little by little. So uh, what I like to do is oftentimes I'll take the subject and set it apart from the verb and set that apart from, the object or indirect object of the verb, Okay, So I know we're doing a lot of English today, but our Bible is given to us in English. And English has patterns and grammar and vocabulary and the context and all of that stuff that we need to take a look at and think about when we're studying the Bible, as we would when we're studying any work of literature. And more importantly, because it's the most important work of literature that there is. So God resists the proud. So we start there. Then we move to the next line. But, and then see, last time I mentioned about inserting an implied subject there, I just put it in square brackets, which indicates to me, hey, listen, I know the word's not there in the Bible. I'm not editing the Bible. I'm just making it clear to my little brain what's going on here. Okay, So I put that in. And uh, I do the same thing. I have the verb set here, lined up with the verb above it, and then I have lined up with the uh, object or indirect object, the the, uh, last part of the phrase. So God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think proud and humble are parallels, even though one is the proud and the other is a prepositional phrase. Okay? You might translate this, by the way, to make it look more parallel. You might say, God resists the proud, but God graces the humble. You see that? Similar meaning. We wouldn't use that word graces too much, but uh, it certainly could convey it and show the parallel that is happening there in the text. Okay, so then we go on to the therefore. We humble ourselves therefore humble yourselves. So this therefore is a consequent to this proposition here. And then I, uh, again, I have the verb humble, and I have the object. What's the subject of this verb? You, that's right. It's an, I could actually have put in brackets, therefore you all humble yourselves, okay? Um, So you are doing the humbling to yourself, aren't you? It's like um, Ephesians chapter 5 when it talks about submitting yourselves. It doesn't say submit, how can I say it? It doesn't say you, you submit someone else to yourself. It says you submit yourself to others. You do it to yourself. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, are you humble before God? Even if you're proud, you're lowly before God. (laughs) But the point is that you see yourself that way, you put yourself in that position, you lower yourself, recognize, acknowledge that you are lower than God. So you humble yourself under the mighty hand. Who's mighty hand? Whoops, The mighty hand of God. Now sometimes I will put of God up here if I have space, I put it down here just to call it out separately, this prepositional phrase, modifying hand. Whose hand is it? Okay? All right, the mighty hand of God. And then we said the purpose of doing that humbling is that he may exalt, and the object is you. Okay? What is this next phrase? How is it related to the above? That he may exalt you in due time. Well, let me not ask that question just yet. Let's just diagram it, okay? We'll ask the question in a moment, okay? Um, That he may exalt you in due time. So you humble yourselves uh, under, I think, actually, I should maybe indent under a little bit more over here to put it under the word humble. Humble, you know, under the mighty hand of God. Humble that he may exalt you in due time. Humble by casting your care, okay? Okay? Uh, and again, I put, I put some uh, words in brackets there to indicate what I understand that text to mean. By casting all your care. And then another prepositional phrase, upon him, that is describing something about how you're casting or where you're casting your care upon him. By the way, what is a prepositional phrase? This is ninth grade English for me anyway. I love this class, ninth grade English. That part of it, anyway. I didn't like the poetry part. I never liked poetry in English class. E. E. Cummings, Mr. Phil Jones taught us. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> What's a prepositional phrase? What's that? Okay, that's not specific enough. Give me some more detail. What's the, let's say it this way: What's the structure of a prepositional phrase? Prepositional phrase begins with a preposition, which is one of those usually small words like like, in, or upon, or of. Okay, and then the prepositional phrase ends with. Somebody said it. Object of the preposition, a noun, right? Something that functions as a noun. So that's a phrase. It can be quite long, often sometimes short like this, or it has modifiers inside of it. Um, and then we have our last, our last one here. I don't know if you all can see that over there. Castle's getting in our way. but um, So for he cares for you. Okay, now we've done that, so we've done our homework. Let me pass out or get some help to pass this out. Jackson, could you give me a hand here? Just give one of these to, let me make sure. Yeah, just give one of those to everybody, okay? So uh, the homework, we just actually went over it right now. Oh, I handed that out, right? Well, this was two weeks ago now. Two weeks ago. Are there some extra handouts, John, on the back table there? Little packets of about four pages? Eight and a half by eleven size. Is that the logical relationships one? Yeah, who did not get one of those? Just put your hand up. The, the handout from last week, two weeks ago. Uh, John Postiff. We need two over here for the Sanderson's. And then one for Becky Banks. Mr. Forbush in the back. (laughs) Here, I can take that extra one. Yeah, that's what it is. You know the reason why you have that? Because Betty said I need that cheat sheet. So I printed it out for you. Thank you, Jackson. I tried to find it online there. Oh, I d I don't know why I thought I put it online, but maybe I haven't done that yet. Oh, okay. Two weeks ago I hadn't, I'm pretty sure. All right. So, um well, I don't know about memorize cuz I'll I'll have this and I'll look at it from often when I'm doing these kinds of exercises, but it is a lot of stuff, but now listen. Do you do this much kind of this kind of stuff or this much stuff in school when you go to school? You did. Well, if you put that much effort into secular school, why shouldn't we put it into Bible study? Okay? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we you know our, our our young people, for instance, are getting dozens of hours of school and then a couple here and there in church and uh so But one of the reasons that education became to be as it was in public education was because godly people wanted young people to be able to read and understand the Bible in this country now that 's long since gone by the wayside you know now it 's all about getting an education so you can get a career which is important, but it's not the most important. All right, so now I put, uh, gave you the handout there, and you should have some blanks on the right-hand side, OK? So we're going to start filling those blanks in. I want you to be an active class participant here by having your pen out and filling those in, OK? So what I would write in that first box myself, and there are some pens in the back table there if you would like them. Uh, is I put the negative positive here uh, out. I just write it out explicitly. What is the benefit of doing this? You're thinking through what is the meaning of this text. Thanks, Jackson. Um, And you're writing it out explicitly. I do this sort of thing when I'm studying the Bible, particularly in the epistles and shorter segments of the text. When I'm doing longer narratives, I don't necessarily diagram the whole thing out. However, when I read texts like this, I sort of see them this way, not without, without having to write them out because I've done it many times before. Okay? So then the second line you should say plus. This is, the, this is the positive side. The main proposition we'll say, okay? God gives grace to the humble. That's, we'll say, the main proposition here. Now, would would the Bible have to say the negative part? Would Would it have to say the negative part to convey the main proposition? I would say provisionally no. It wouldn't have to say it. But it adds a whole lot of color, doesn't it, to that picture when you say the... Main proposition is God gives grace to the humble. Somebody's going to say, well, what about people that aren't humble? Well, Peter already covered it. God resists those people. Okay? You ask yourself, by the way, because pride is an epidemic. No, 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 no. It's a pandemic. Okay? Everybody has it. And it manifests its ugly head in many ways. It started out with Satan, didn't it? I will be like the Most High. You know, you want to be like God, don't you, Eve? And so on, all the way down through human history. Okay? Exhibitions of pride all over the place. Pride. Funny name for a movement today, isn't it? Um, So we have the negative and we have the positive. Okay, now. Okay, so you're writing in those blanks now. Okay, you're filling in. And uh, the third one, I have put those funny three dots. That's for all of you folks that have been in a logic class or discrete mathematics. Uh, they use those three dots there. Do you see those? Third, third line. See that? Oh, you probably can't see it behind that flag. That just uh, that that just means therefore. That means consequently. Okay, that's a. It's it that's three dots in the in the. Arrangement of a triangle. Yeah, yeah. That's a shorthand for the word therefore. It just means there's a a logical consequent. God gives grace to the humble consequently. Humble yourselves. There's, And you can also notice that this, whoops, sorry, this all disappeared, uh, that this is a command, okay? In fact, that's one of the things I wanted to say today. It's hard to illustrate on a two-dimensional piece of paper, but... There are layers to this. So you you can look at this in logical relationships between the clauses, and then you have to look at what what are the clauses themselves. You know, that's an imperative. That's a command. Um, You know, God could say to us, humble yourself, period. Okay, now, then you might say, well, why why do I have to do that? Well... He already answered the question because God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. And then he, you might say, "Well, how do I do that?" Well, Peter says, "I'm going to I'm about to tell you how to do that." But God could simply say, "Humble yourself," and that would be sufficient. But he's given us a whole lot more color to the picture here, okay? All right. So yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I, I'm saying when I say that, for the purposes of our study of this little section, we're going to say this is the main proposition. Actually, this is part of a larger context in which there might be a more, ma- a mainer proposition, you know, a bigger proposition of which this is a sub piece. But for this section, we're just going to say, this is the main proposition. We're not going to worry, correct, that's right. All right, so. Um, humble yourselves Uh, okay so then we have this prepositional phrase under under is the preposition hand is the object of the preposition and the two words the and mighty modify the word hand don't they okay you could just say humble yourselves under the hand of God well there's a little modifier here tells you a little more about his hand okay Um, and so what I've said is this is the location, for lack of a better logical relationship, this is the location where you humble yourself. You know, it's almost kind of like you could say how to, there's a little bit of a, oh, what can we say, uh, judgment call there and how you explain that. I think you get the idea. Um, I called out this line of God with an explanation. Whose hand is it? Mighty hand of God. let's see here. I'm running out of ability to see these here, but I can see them on my sheet. So the next one I have called out is on the next line, is that line that says that He may exalt you. This is the purpose of humbling ourselves. OK. Um, go back to your well, maybe you don't have your handout. Some of you have it. Some of you that have the handout, what is a purpose? What is a purpose? Look at the, in the parentheses there, Becky. It's the fifth one down, P-U, purpose. Purpose, A purpose is an intended result. So sometimes we get confused in our minds is, what's a result and what's a purpose? The result is what actually comes to pass, what actually happened. The purpose is the intentional outcome, the intended outcome, the hoped for outcome. Okay, we're hoping for this outcome. Now, we know that God is going to do this, but God's purpose in instructing this is that people will be exalted in due time. There's a bit of a contingency here, though. Sometimes people don't humble themselves. (laughs) And then this purpose, this intended result, doesn't become an actual result, does it? The actual result is that God resists the people that don't do the humbling. All right, so that's the, uh, that's the purpose. Um, the next one, I should say temporal up there, if you can see that. In due time, this is a temporal clause that is when God will exalt. Okay. I'm just, I'm just now thinking when, I, when I'm studying this and I'm saying in due time, what, is, what does this mean? Um, well it means that god's not going to necessarily exalt me today or tomorrow maybe only in heaven or maybe in some way later on or maybe in some small way now and some big way later but it's not it does this phrase right here destroys the prosperity gospel just noticing that this is a temporal clause that talks about when the when the exalting will occur, do you see how that destroys the prosperity gospel? Just that one three-word phrase. God's not, you know, give me money and God will give you more money. No, <laughs> that's not what the scripture says. Yes, sir? At the proper time. At the proper time. That's right. The word do or proper are are uh, synonymous there in these translations, and at the proper time. Who determines the proper time? In the prosperity gospel, I determine the proper time. In this text, he determines the proper time. Yes? Yeah, yeah, and and that's right, and his timing. Um, You know, in, in due time... What is that phrase or that verse? In due time, Christ died for the ungodly at the right time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Lots of those kinds of phrases. There's something about timing that's important. So, uh, you know, if you get rid of the phrase in due time, it does change the meaning, doesn't it? You can't get rid of the phrase in due time. It's there. All right, we already said, did means come up there? can't see. (laughs) Um, So the next one is by casting all your care, that's the means, how you humble, okay? Then where you cast your cares. Where do you cast your cares? On your medical doctor, psychotherapist? No, not even on your Christian friend, although you can share your afflictions with your Christian friends, but you cast your cares upon him, upon God. And uh, then why can you do that? You have the ground of God supporting your casting of care because he cares for you, okay? All right. That, that took us through our homework assignment. Now, I knew we were going to have more time, so any questions on this? So let's go to another one. Let's look at John 3.16. Okay, I don't have this in the notes, all right? So uh, bear with me. It's just on these notes here on the screen. So I uh, have written this out in a very similar form to how we did it on the previous slides. For God so loved the world. So we have a uh, subject... Well, we have the word for, which connects us back to some prior context, which we don't have, and we can't get into all that at the moment. So we have a subject, we have a verb, we have an object. Okay? What is the word so? What is the part of speech of the word so? Okay? It, ad- it, it adds to the verb, okay, we'll say. It's an adverb. Modifies the, the verb loved. Okay? All right, let's go on. God so loved the world that, now I've called these little words out, I'll call them particles, little um, conjunctions and things on separate lines here just to make us think about them a little bit more. You don't have to do that every time, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I should have, I should have spread this out a little bit. He and space gave and then his only begotten son put a little space over here, but it is definitely indented under the word that. That, is the, is the, that controls the whole bunch of text underneath it. As, as it. The way I say underneath is because when it's diagrammed, it falls underneath that. It's controlling all of that text. All right, so he gave his only begotten son, and then he gave, underneath gave, I have indented another that, that whoever believes, and that I have properly spaced out a little bit space subject whoever and believes now the word whoever what is the word how do you describe the word whoever the yeah how do you describe the word whoever it's a subject here is it a regular noun it's a pronoun okay what kind of pronoun is it this is a harder question (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. It's a singular, yes. I guess you could say that. Yes, I'm trying to think now. I lost my train of thought. Is it a is it a relative pronoun? An indefinite relative pronoun. (laughs) All right. So that whoever believes, where's your belief placed? In him. I'm going to not be able to see and I don't even have my notes now. Uh, that whoever believes... So God gave that whoever believes in Him should not perish, okay? Uh, this is interesting. Because of space constraints, I, I have really this whole thing as a subject. It's whoever believes in Him, that person, that whole person right there, whoever does that, should not perish, okay? So that's the verb another verb, really, that goes with that subject, okay? Now what? I should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see the word but here? What are you going to be thinking? Negative, positive, okay? Not perish, but have everlasting life. All right, so now, um, whoops, now we're going to go through and do the explanations like we did before, Labeling of all the clauses, okay, or phrases. Okay, I can share this with you uh, electronically as well. When uh, after the service, here, okay, so the word for is an explanatory word. <laughs> Teacher Jackson, huh? <laughs> <sighs> All right. So the word for is an explanation of the prior stuff in the text, and this is where study gets more uh, complicated, but more interesting because you connect larger pieces of text together. Okay. So the stuff that came before, you remember, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. You know, whoever looks on him, kind of like looking at the serpent, would have eternal life for God so loved the world that he gave, okay, so that connects to the prior. So this is just a little, we're kind of isolating our study to just this piece of text for the moment, okay. I'm going to call this God so loved the world. We're going to call this an action, okay. Uh, the reason I do that is because, so at the bottom of the uh, page there of the um, cheat sheet, I have a number of kind of main um, clause uh, Labels, a statement, a proposition, an action, an idea, or an imperative. And I just call this an action. God loved the world, okay? Now, this is important. Um, This is often misunderstood in this text. It's actually actually the conjunction of the word so with the word that tells us the manner in which God loved the world that is how he loved the world yes sir how is god's will the world not the ground it the rest of the statement is based on how is it not a ground well that's a good question we'll have to think about that because the whole thing is a ground or explanation of something that came before okay so that's one thing um, but uh God loved the world. Let's just hold on to that thought. So we have God loved the world as an action, and we have a manner, and then we have uh, the, the way in which he did this love, the way in which he implemented this love. Okay, so Jackson, you're saying, how is this not a ground? This not a ground? Because the way this, the text is structured, there are other texts in the New Testament that give the, give, use God's love as the ground for our salvation. This one is explaining God loved, and this is how he did it, okay? All right, so uh, here's the manner in which God loved the world. Now, I was saying here that some, mo- most people initially think that the word so is an adverb, describes the amount, quantity, extent of God's love. But if you read the Greek text, which you don't have access to directly, but I'm just telling you, this word doesn't mean amount or quantity or extent. It means thusly. It means in this manner, okay? The way in which he loved the world or how he loved it, okay? People want to talk about God loves, but they don't. They omit the, the way in which he loved, okay? Yes, God loved the world. How did he do that? A substitutionary death for sinners is how he did that, okay? And this text tells us that. So I put another action here, manner, so God loved the world. What did he do or how how did he do that? Well, the, the action is telling us he gave his only begotten son. Now, notice when we're doing this, we're actually, we're not giving a full accounting of the meaning of the text. That's what preaching would have to do, okay? We're saying that that's the action, but you could dig down into this and say, what does it mean that God gave? What what does it mean that the son is begotten? How is it that God gave his son? What is the relationship of the son to the father? I mean, there's so much more here that you can talk about and try to understand, but we'll just at this kind of level of abstraction deal with the relationship of these phrases. Okay, so God gave His only begotten Son. The purpose, what is the purpose again? The intended result. The intended result of God giving His Son, why did He give? Was so that people who believe in Him would have eternal life, okay? Um, This is kind of a simple one here. This one is what where our belief must be placed, in him. And then here's the negative positive, okay? I don't know if you all can see that, but you have the negative and then you have the positive. Okay, he gave so that people who believe should not perish but have everlasting life. The positive alternative is the everlasting life. The negative alternative is uh, that people would perish if they... Don't believe in him, okay? So this is, this is just another illustration for us of, let me see, what do I have? Oh, <laughs> I forgot to change the layout of this slide. This is just another way of showing what I had showed before, okay, in a shorter, in a shorter fashion. The up arrow indicating the uh, consequent or the relationship to the prior text, the main action here, And then I I put little highlight lines and I said, okay, this whole thing is the manner. And this, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's That's the purpose of his giving. So when you do, let me go back. What I'm trying to say is all of this information on this slide, if you have studied like this for any length of time, all of that is kind of summarized in, sorry, in this little way of diagramming it, okay? So somebody else has come up with a way of diagramming they call arcing, and what they try to do is they try to uh, put, like, here's the action, God so loved the world, and they say that the rest of the text is uh, subsumed, subsumed under this arc they call purpose, okay? So they're saying God so loved the world and they're saying the rest of this is the purpose, okay? Now, I don't agree with that because I just showed you that this whole thing is the manner in which God loved, and then underneath that is a little purpose, yes, but not the whole thing is not a purpose. this is the manner in which God loved. but they haven't they haven't in this diagram that I found online, they haven't acknowledged that. they just called the whole thing a purpose, which I think skews a little bit the understanding of proper understanding of the text. But this shows you, see this diagram here is all left aligned. See that, Jackson? No indentation here. But what they've done is they've brought the indentation basically over here with multiple layers of these arcs upon each other. Okay, So there's multiple ways to do this diagramming. Maybe one way works better in your brain than than my brain. But that's okay, it's just you want to figure out something that uh, can help you to understand the text. Yes, sir. yes, yeah, so uh, George is saying, asserting that the main thrust of this verse is uh, to get people to believe and then and then explaining why and how. I would say because of the structure of the verse, let me go back, because of the structure of the verse, with belief in here, indented one, two, three, or four three or more levels, that that's not The main thrust of the verse is very important, but when I'm diagramming, when I when I diagram a larger text section of scripture, what I will end up doing is I'll say, "Oh, this is far the farthest left um, text. Everything else indented under that supports it." So if I have several blocks of text where I have, you know, an indentation level zero here and another indentation level zero up here, and another one down here. Those will become my main points of my sermon. And the rest of the stuff will become, you know, my little, the way I do it, my little ABC one, two, threes underneath there in the sermon outline. That's because the structure of the text I'm using to dictate the structure of my sermon often, not always. I choose to do it different ways sometimes, but... That's, uh, we, we generally want the structure of our sermon or talk and you know, teaching to match the structure of the Bible text because that is a good practice for the pastor to model for you so that you see that I'm just not making stuff up out of the text, but you can say, oh, okay, I can do that too because you can do it. You go somewhere quiet with a Bible, a notepad, and a pencil, and you do this. And you say, that's hard. It's delightful. <laughs> it is fun to be able to study the Scripture and think. And, and when you run into a problem, you pray, Lord, I don't quite understand how this fits with that. Help me to understand it. Okay. Um, this just, it's just how... It's just good, you know. It's just uh, it's exciting when you can do that and spend time in God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the uh, privilege to be able to do this today. Uh, help us to enjoy uh, the remainder of our time together this morning, with the Vacation Bible School video and the, uh, uh, that we'll see in just a few moments on the projector and also um, the uh, singing that the kids will do and the rest of the service as well. Help us to apply some of the things that we've learned. I know it's a lot of material, but you're able to help us to just take little baby steps to look at a text of Scripture and write it out and think about it. And that thinking is meditating on the Word. And after all, the Bible says the blessed man is the man who meditates in your Word day and night. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.